And in that, as you recall, we talked last week that pursuing the law, this has been the central argument so far in this chapter, that pursuing the law for justification. Again, not that the law is wrong or that the law is sinful. Paul takes up that issue in Romans 7, and the answer to that is certainly not. It's not a problem with the law. But the point being here, that pursuing the law for justification can only reveal one thing about me. This is important that we wrap our minds around. As I spoke last week, this tendency towards legalism. We have to understand, pursuing the law for justification, that is, in order to be declared right in God's verdict, pursuing the law for that purpose can only reveal one thing about me. That one thing is my essential sinfulness. That it belongs to me inherently. That as I pursue the law to be declared right, I find out time and time and time and time again that I am inherently sinful. You see, through the law, speaks, as we will this morning, just for a few moments, of the nature of the law. It's important for us to get this understanding. That through the law, we are taught, we are instructed that we are sinners for whom it is impossible to perform any purely good work. That's why we say... God pardons even our good works. It is impossible for me, Adam Thomas, for you, fellow human being, it is impossible to perform any purely good work. Through the law, I learn that everything I think, everything I speak, and everything I do, is opposed to God. That is what I am taught through the law. Samuel Bolton, an English clergyman and a member of that great document that we prize very highly, the Westminster Confession of Faith. He was a member of the Westminster Assembly. Once wrote this about the nature of the law, and I I think it will be very helpful for you. Samuel Bolton, English clergyman, writes this, quote, Natural men dream that by a strict performance of duty, they shall obtain favor. Do you see the, see the note that he's putting on that? This is, the, this, this is how we're drawn back into that natural tendency. When he speaks here of natural men, our natural tendency, that, that of uh, our, our, our uh, material self, that has this notion that we can ascend heaven's hills. Natural men dream that by a strict performance of duty, they shall obtain favor. But God saith thus, I will show them their folly by proclaiming a law so high that they will despair of attaining unto it. They think that their works will be sufficient to save them. They think falsely. 
And they will be ruined by their mistake. I will send them a law so terrible in its censures, so unflinching in its demands, that they cannot possibly obey it. They will be driven even to desperation. The concluding comment by Samuel Bolton regarding God's comments on the law. They will be driven even to desperation and come and receive my mercy through Jesus Christ. You see, not pivot and achieve my mercy, but they will pivot and they will receive my mercy through Jesus Christ. You see, when we look at the New Testament again and again, and no shortage of it here, as Paul even describes his own testimony in chapter 1, And if we go to Romans 7, that great text on the nature of the law and the sin principle within each of us, we find out time and time and time and time and time again that the real enemy is not something outside of me. That is why legalism cannot work. Because through legalism, through pursuit of the law, through micromanagement strategies, I find out that the real enemy is not something outside of me, but it is something deeply indwelt within me. The real enemy, Paul declares again, and you can see it in Romans 7 very clearly, the real enemy is indwelling sin. The law is not false. The law is not unholy. The law is not no good to me. But I cannot pursue it therein to be justified by it because I have indwelling sin that is constantly therein revealed. Calvin made that mention, the great statement about if Christ and all that he did to achieve redemption remained outside of us, then it remains no good to us. But it must take residence within us that it may benefit us. Because therein is where the problem resides, within. The remedy, as we'll see here in just a moment, the remedy for indwelling sin, for yours and for mine, for every human being in the human condition, the remedy for indwelling sin we have to get this, guys. We have to get is not greater pursuit of the law. Again, that's why Paul says, if, if I just rebuild what I've already tore down, I just spin my wheels. What do you learn? I learn that I'm a transgressor. That's what I learn. I learn more about my indwelling sin. That's what I learn. You see, the remedy for me is not greater pursuit of the same law. But the remedy to my condition is grace. As Bolton says, they will be driven even to despair 
to desperation, and they will come and receive my mercy through Christ. That's the solution. Notice how Paul explains this sense. He expands upon the argument from last week of verse 18 into verse 19 as he expresses his understanding of guilt. Notice this understanding in his own life, verse 19. For, and, and so again, thought connective there to verse 18. He, he's still building the same argument. Uh, so I can't prove, I'm going to prove myself simply to be a transgressor by rebuilding the law that I have already torn down. I can't circle back. For, through the law, this is what happens. Through the law, the agency of the law, I died to the law. With this purpose in mind. So that I might live. That I might live to God. You see, Paul came to find life. True and abundant, fulfilling life. He came to find life only through dying to the law. How does someone die to the law? What does he mean by I died to the law? Again, through the law. It's the agency whereby I come to the end of my rope. I didn't die and then found life. I I died very particularly, very specifically. I died to the law. I died to that system. How? Through the system. When I worked and I worked and I labored and I labored and I spun and I spun and I dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into my debts, I died there through that process. But therein I found life at the end of my rope. As I've mentioned to you, and I'm alluding to it multiple times, please take and read Romans 7. But I'll simply give you this, Romans 7, verse 24. Paul speaking about the role of the law. and I, I learned through the law what? I learned that I'm a sinner through the law. That's what I learned. I, I, I was alive. I lived in a particular way, feeling the sense of self. And I didn't realize what a covetous person I was. I lived until I heard the commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And I realized at that moment just how covetous I am. It awakens to show us our desperate need of who we really are alone. Paul, through the course of chapter 7, then in verse 24, exclaims, a text you know very well, and it leads us right into the victory of Romans 8. Of course, 7 gives way to 8, and Paul says in 7.24, Oh, wretched man that I am, that's what I realized. If I rebuild what I've already torn down, what will I learn? That I'm a wretched man. Oh, wretched man that I am. What will I do with this? I will send them a law so terrible in its censures, so unflinching in its demands, that they cannot possibly obey it. Thou shalt not covet. I realized at that moment I was a wicked coveter. They will be driven to desperation. Oh, wretched man that I am. And they will come. And they will receive 
O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? For through the agency of the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As one author makes a note of Paul's statement here in Galatians 2, verse 19, he says, The law has put Paul to death, for its service whipped him to death by its demands. But again, what's important in our time, each Lord's Day we gather, we don't just dissect a text, but we come under the text to receive of it in our own soul. It's not a study simply in Paul and what made him tick or where he found human flourishing and how he found victory, but we are all analyzed by this infallible inerrant word wherein we open it on Lord's Day to receive of its nourishment. We come here in this very text to realize the same truths, that we come to an end of ourselves, each and every one of us this morning. We, human beings, every one of us, come to an end of ourselves through this same instrumentation through the law of God. It's not that Paul, being Jewish, simply came to an end as he read the Ten Commandments. If we take and read, what will be left of us? You see, it's the instrument of the law that brings us to desperation Why? But why so much? Because think of it. If we possess the indwelling sin principle, which we do, then the law adds demands and requires what it fails to provide. I simply can't now do it, having it taught to me what is required. I'm still the same person. It's not just more head knowledge that I need to know. Oh, 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 I didn't realize that that that, that was a commandment. Now that I know it, I won't violate it. I haven't materially changed in the simple category of knowing more. I'm still the wretched man that I am. I'm still the individual having known all 613 commandments. I'm still the same person that needs deliverance. Each and every one of us, through the instrument of the law, come to an end of ourselves. For the law requires that which it cannot provide. But as Paul outlines very carefully, notice verse 19. Um, again, again, the law requires what it cannot provide, obedience, but it cannot provide obedience. So, so, so through that law of requirement, I, I died to it. I died to the condition of excelling through it. I died to it. I cannot be on the performance wheel any longer. I died through it so that, and here it is, I might live. Live truly. 
that I might live to God. You see, again, we come to an end of ourselves through the instrument of the law, but our humiliation is not an end in and of itself. We're not left there. But our humiliation is a means to a glorious end in the gospel through the instrumentation of faith. Seventeenth-century rhyme. I'm sure you've heard it. In fact, years ago we preached through the Ten Commandments series on the law and the gospel. I used it then. I think it perfectly and succinctly captures the picture of what Paul is describing here in verse 19. And it is simply this. Run, John, run, the law commands. But gives me neither feet nor hands. You you see what he's saying? For through the law, it's instrumentation in my life. I died to it. I simply, I went there and I got to the end of my rope. But, but what did you do? I pivoted. I, I, I took pivot and I, and I might live. What, what was the object whereby you might come to live unto God? You, you see, it, it requires what it cannot provide. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Therein is the dilemma. But he adds, far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's what you call the good news announcement. What it requires, it also graciously provides. Augustine said something very similar. Speaking of the nature of the law so long ago, St. Augustine once wrote, he said, quote, In the law, God bids us do what we cannot. What's the point of that? Why, why, why such an unflinching, unrelenting law? Why? Paul has been describing it all throughout chapter 2. St. Augustine summarizes similarly. In the law, God bids us do what we cannot that we may know what we ought to seek from him. For through the law, I died to the law. The instrument of law brought me death so that I might live to God. Paul now continues to describe how, again, the great good news announcement he is beginning to describe, how God in the gospel, and this is something we have to understand because the gospel is not another law. It is contrary to law. It is the good news. Because wherein what it requires of you Remember, you think of the grace of the gospel wherein it requires a call to the sinner. And even in this moment, a call to you to repent and believe. You say, well, there's a command. That must be law wherein I cannot ascend. 
Because who am I but a wretched man? But you see, that's the beauty of the gospel. What the gospel requires, it also provides. When you hear the power of the good news announcement, and in the hearing of the good news announcement, faith is birthed. Regeneration is given through the instrument of the good news announcement. What God requires in that good news, he also provides. This is how Paul describes it. All that is required is provided. God sources it. Notice verse 20. He goes on to describe that he lives to God. And now he's, he's explaining how this transaction is taking place. He's sourcing it. How that I might have been at the end of my rope through the law. I found that I was that wretched individual and I needed someone to deliver me from this body of death. That I might live to God therein. The transition, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the source. I have been crucified with Christ. The effect therein is it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live through the instrument of faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, I want you to notice for the next couple of moments together the double benefit of how God provides all that is required I want to entreat you to the gospel, to receive it simply, to let faith ascend and rest and lean truly upon Christ. As you consider it here just for a moment, and it's double benefit of being united to him. If you are a believer and your faith truly rests upon Christ, you have received in him all that is required. You are fully clothed, as we said last week, in blood-washed linens. There is a double benefit to your life lived through union with Christ. Notice this double benefit. The first benefit of your being united to Christ that you might live to God is you are in union. Think about this. You are in union to Christ's death. This is the language where he explains the life that he lives, that I might live to God, and he describes it, and he sources it in this statement, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, Paul is saying to each one of us whose faith terminates on Jesus Christ as a soul-saving object, the law can no longer condemn us. It cannot harm us in any way. For we have died to its penalties through our union to the death of Christ. This is the victory of his union. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Wherein are you living? How have you come to live? I have been crucified with Christ. 
You see, the law cannot harm me in any way. The law no longer stands to condemn me in any way. For I have died in the death of Christ. I have died to its penalties when he suffered them for me. And the vessel of faith united me to his death. His death is my dying. Look over at Romans 8 just briefly. I want you to see this text. We spoke of Romans 7. And it leads us directly. We could have preached the same sermon from Romans 7 and 8. But of course we're in Galatians 2. But I do want to jump over to seeing exactly how this same uh, apparatus is at work. The same logic that Paul is laying out in the nature of the law and, and, and deliverance comes not through law but through grace. And that grace comes to us through union to Christ. Um, I'll just jump up so you can see the beginning of it. I'll begin in verse 21 of chapter 7 and then I want to read through 8 uh, verse 4. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, to the point, it's not something out there that is my problem. It's something in here. Verse 24 then moves him. He pivots as we speak of the the, the law that is so intense and so demanding and unflinching in its requirements and yet provides nothing of aid whereby I might achieve victory. So Paul then says, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Not, not how can I deliver myself? No, that's it, I'm done. Who will deliver me from this body of death? From me? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. There is, for this wretched man, now no condemnation. But but, but how are you passing through it? How are you being delivered? Uh, again, if you are that wretched man and the, and, and the weight of, this, of the law reveals more sinfulness, how are you being no longer condemned? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus union. I can't be condemned because I died already. I died through my union to him. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. How so? How can I be so free and liberated beyond condemnation for my union to Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death? For God has done, 
God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It cannot do that. It doesn't even function that way. God did it. How? By sending his own son. But I'm a wretched man. I'm a human being. But he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful human beings. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And he sent him for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He did that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law. That which is required, he provided. That it might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh principle. No, we're in union to Christ. We walk according to the Spirit. His death is my death. But as I said, not just simply in union to one benefit, but it is a double benefit that Paul lays out here in the text. And the second of that benefit of my union, I'm once united to the death of Christ. I have been crucified. 2,000 years ago, I was crucified. But the double benefit of not only dying in him, I am also raised with him. I am in union to Christ's life. Not only am I in union to his death, I am in union to his life. Notice how he describes it from crucifixion and union. He says, it is no longer I who live. You see, I was was in union to death and dying, but I also have been in union to life that might be lived. It is no longer I then who, who, from this point forward, from crucifixion, it's no longer I who live, you see, but Christ who lives in me. I'm in union. Then he speaks of the paradoxical way that the Christian life experience continues. Notice he says, and the life I now live. Wait a minute, I thought you just said that you no longer live. I'm still alive, but I'm in vital, mystical union to Christ who energizes and animates my life in him. It is no longer I who simply live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm in union. And the life then that I now live, that I carry out in the flesh, the life I live every day, I live by the same instrument that brought me here. I live by faith. But has the object of saving faith changed? In your life of sanctification, has your object of faith changed? Do you now circle back and focus more on self? No. I live every day by faith. But in what object? How does it rest? Where is its respite? In the Son of God. I'm reminded through faith. He loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, it is gratitude that propels Paul forward. 
If we look at this text and step back, and I'm winding down my time with you, but if we step back, it reflects the beautiful organization of the Heidelberg Catechism. This text. He realized his guilt. Through the law, I died to the law. He experienced grace. He became alive unto God through union to Christ. He knew guilt very well. He was met with grace, and his life is fueled by gratitude. You see, Paul is saying, the manner of my life in which I go on living, I was made alive by crucifixion. I was in union to Christ Jesus. I am in union to his death. His death was my death. And now his life is my life. The manner in which I now live, my everyday experience, is through my vital union to the Son of God, who I am reminded loved me and gave himself up for me. We could say it quite simply something like this. Faith in the first, faith in the last. I live by his power, and I am motivated by his grace. I want to conclude um, with this meditation, and that will be the last of our time together. I think it captures this text brilliantly. If you hear as I read aloud. O heavenly father. Teach me to see. That if Christ has pacified thee. And satisfied divine justice. He can also deliver me. From my sins. Teach me to see. That Christ does not desire me, now justified, to live in self-confidence in my own strength. But gives me the law of the spirit of life to enable me to obey thee. Teach me to see that the spirit And his power are mine by resting on Christ's death. That the spirit of life within answers to the law without. That if I sin, that if I sin not, I should thank thee for it. That if I sin, I should be humbled daily under it. That I should mourn for sin more than other men do. For when I see I shall die because of sin, that makes me mourn. When I see how sin strikes at thee, that makes me mourn. When I see that sin caused your death, that makes me mourn. That sanctification is the evidence of reconciliation. 
proving that faith has truly apprehended Christ. Thou hast taught me that faith is nothing else than receiving thy kindness. That it is adherence to Christ, a simple resting on him, a love clinging to him as a branch to a tree. Teach me to see that I must seek life in thee, in vigor from thee. Let us pray.